Walk worthy of the vocation which you are called. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Before we get started, I want to entrust everybody here to Our Lady's uh, Maternal Immaculate Heart. There's no delicate way to approach this topic. And so I ask for everyone's prayers for anyone here that may have already been hurt by what we're going to talk about. If that pertains to anyone, I apologize in advance. Uh, the only thing I'm really concerned about is not so much pain in this life as to avoid it in the next. And so I'm assuming that you'd rather hear things that are a little painful that are true than a bunch of soothing lies. Well, most faithful Catholics had their attention focused on the upcoming synod. On September 8th, the Pope issued two documents. One document for Latin Catholics, that's us, one document for the Eastern Catholics, like the Maronites, the Chaldeans, the Ukrainian Catholics, Sierra Malabars, and so forth. We're going to spend some time this morning considering Metis Udex, which that's the document he issued to us Latins, which deals with annulments. In order to understand what's going to happen, what this, what happens, what's going to happen when this document takes effect in early December, we need to take some time this morning putting it into context. So here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to make sure that everyone here knows exactly what a marriage is. Then we're going to make sure that everyone here knows exactly what an annulment is. Then we're going to take a quick look at the current annulment situation here in America. And finally, we're going to consider Medes Udex, the Pope's document. In that way, we'll have some idea of what we can look forward to starting in December, okay? As usual, my sermons, I have cut and pasted quotes. There's too many sources today to cite them all. So, first we're going to look at what a marriage is, then what an annulment is, then the current situation of annulments in America, and finally, uh, we're going to consider the Pope's new document. Marriage. Marriage is a relationship that results from a contract. It's a relationship that results from a contract. And here's the contract that a couple makes when they exchange vows. A man and a woman give and accept an exclusive and perpetual right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's the contract. A man and a woman give and accept a perpetual and exclusive right for acts which are themselves suitable for the generation of children. That's a, almost a direct translation from the old code of canon law. By validly making, consume, consummating this contract, then the two become more closely related to each other than a brother is to a sister, than a father is to his son. And that relationship is made directly by God. That relationship is perpetual, which means it lasts until death. It's exclusive which means it pertains only to that man and to that woman and no one else, and it's limited. It means the couple is contracted for rights which are themselves suitable for the procreation or generation of children. That's what marriage is. So that's the first point. Second, once we clearly understand that marriage is a God-created relationship that results from a man-made contract, it's easy to see the difference between a divorce and declaration of nullity. Declaration of nullity is commonly known as an annulment. Divorce claims to break up a marriage that actually is in being. Nullity means the marriage never came into being. It's the discovery that the contract to marry did not exist, that the contract was not valid. Marriage is not only a contract, but it results from a contract. And that means if there is no contract, then the relationship didn't come into being. So nullity concerns the marriage contract only. If it's valid, then the relationship arises and cannot be nullified. 
That's essential to understand. A lot of people don't get this point. If the contract is validly made, then nothing, and nothing means absolutely nothing, that happens only after the marriage has come into being, can possibly be a ground for decree of nullity. That is why the only question asked by the church is, was the contract properly entered into? Was the contract validly made? If it was, then there could be no possible question of nullity. The marriage came into being, which means the parties are now governed by the laws of marriage, not by the contract. If the contract was validly made, then it would simply be false to say the union never was a marriage. But that's exactly what a decree of nullity means. So, Okay, so a decree of nullity, commonly known as an annulment, is a finding by a tribunal. What's a tribunal? A tribunal is basically one of the church's courts of law. A decree of nullity, commonly called an annulment, is a finding by a tribunal that the contract to marriage did not exist, that the contract was not validly made. And again, although marriage is not only a contract, it results from a contract, and so if there was no contract, then the marriage did not come into existence. A degree of nullity is issued by a diocesan marriage tribunal, which is supposed to follow a fairly rigorous process to collect and then review the essential facts, after which a judgment on the validity of the marriage contract is made. After this, then, a second court, which is usually in a neighboring diocese, also reviews the judgment to make sure that nothing was overlooked. The decision may be appealed all the way up to the sacred Roman Rhoda, which is the Roman tribunal for these cases. There are a whole hierarchy of tribunals, ranging from a diocesan tribunal all the way up to those found in Rome. The sacred Roman Rhoda and the apostolic signatura. That's what Cardinal Burke used to be the head of. Errors are possible in a tribunal process. Just think Joan of Arc. Errors are possible, which is why the decisions are reviewed. If, however, the witnesses are honest, the tribunal is conscientious about following the letter and the spirit of the law, the decree is morally certain, and so it can be followed in good faith. So the marriage tribunals of the church examine claims of nullity. And once we see a declaration of nullity can only be issued by a tribunal, then it's easy to understand what's wrong with the so-called internal form solution. Now this is a fancy priest word for something that's really wicked. By this we mean the idea, unfortunately promoted by many priests, that they can somehow grant annulments in a confessional or in a conversation. Only a competent tribunal of the church can grant a de declaration of nullity. This is a real problem, at least where I'm from. Only a tri competent tribunal of the church can grant a declaration of nullity. We just do not have that power as simple priests. Period. So if anyone here has been misled in this way by one of these wicked priests, for the love of God and the salvation of your soul, please come see one of us. Okay, so there are two different processes by which a marriage tribunal comes to a conclusion regarding the validity or the nullity of the marriage contract. There's two ways. A procedure called the documentary process, that's the first way, the documentary process. That's used to deal with cases such as those involving what's called the defective form. That occurs when a Catholic is married outside the church without a dispensation from the bishop. He just goes to Reno and goes to the Wedding Blues Chapel or something. That's defective form. Or if the partner were below the illegal age at the time of attempting the contract. So the church requires the groom to be at least 16 years old and the bride to be at least 14 years old. 
or they attempt marriage to a person who is validly married to someone else and so forth. In these cases, the tribunal examines the documents and sees, for example, the Catholic couple attempted marriage outside the church without a dispensation. It's obviously invalid. There's nothing more to see. Declaration of nullity. 21% of the declarations of nullity issued in the U.S. in 2007 were by means of the documentary process. And most of those were granted for defective form. In other words, most of those were granted for Catholics who attempted to contract marriage outside the church without a dispensation from the bishop. So that's a documentary process. They just have to look at the paperwork and say, there it is. The other process is known as the ordinary process. This requires a trial to determine whether the marriage was validly contracted. These cases deal with situations like permanent impotence at the time of marriage, or claims of a shotgun wedding, or claims that one or the other dispositive is absolutely fixed on never having children on polygamy, or on cases where at least one of the parties was only simulating the contract from some other motive. For example, he just wanted to get legal status in a country. On, or other questions that revolve around validity of the consent. In 2007, 79% of the declarations of nullity granted in the United States were granted through the ordinary process, required a trial. So 21% looking at the documents, 79% they had to have a trial and investigate the situation at consent. Now that we consider the second point, what a declaration of nullity is, let's turn to the third point, which has to do with the current situation regarding annulments in America. We'll read some tribunal statistics from the Canon Law Society of America. Now listen carefully, please. In 2011, Los Angeles Tribunal, total formal decisions, in other words, ones by the ordinary process that required a trial. We're not talking about documentary ones. Total formal decisions, 530. Percent of, percentage of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 0%. Or we'll walk back through that again to make sure everybody understands exactly what I just read. In 2011, the LA Tribunal rendered 530 decisions regarding the validity of marriage contracts in the ordinary process. The percentage of those total decisions, the percentage of those 530 decisions which were found contrary to nullity was 0%. When we're giving the percentage of those uh, uh, contrary to nullity, this is the same as saying the percentage of cases in which the marriage was valid. In other words, 100% of the 530 decisions of the LA Tribunal in 2011 resulted in a declaration of nullity. Not one of the cases, not even one, was seen as resulting in a valid marriage, okay? So that's, let's keep going. 2011, the Cleveland Tribunal. Total form of decisions, 277. Percent of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 0%. 2011, the Pittsburgh Tribunal. Total form of decisions, 216. Percentage of total decisions found contrary to nullity, 0%. I would have to read a list of 42 diocesan tribunals before the percentage climbed from 0% to a whopping 1%. In other words, in 2011, in 42 dioceses, 100% of the cases tried were found to be null. I think you get the idea. There's 10 pages of these statistics here. 10 pages. 10 pages. So what's the message here? In dioceses like these, it seems to be, you show up with your divorce, and we'll give you the annulment. Instead of calling these tribunals, a more accurate term might be annulment mills. When I think about this, I just can't get the first secret out of my mind. 
Before we leave this point, let me read data from the last three tribunals listed in these ten pages. Listen carefully. 2011, the St. Paul, Minneapolis Tribunal. Total former decisions, 151. Percentage of total decisions found contrary to Nolte, 30%. 2011, the Colorado Springs Tribunal. Total former decisions, 35. Percentage of total decisions found contrary to Nolte, 31%. 2011, Fort Wayne South Bend Tribunal. Total former decisions, 63. Percentage of total decisions found contrary to Nolte, 33%. So two possibilities come to mind. Either the people who get married and live in St. Paul and Minneapolis, or Colorado Springs, or Fort Wayne and South Bend are significantly different than all other Americans or else the tribunals are significantly different. I don't think you need me to point out which one is more likely. Let's not forget, how can we possibly forget that American tribunals require, actually require a civil divorce? I have literally no idea how this can be reconciled with the clear teaching of the church in this very grave matter. St. John Paul II, and I quote, Pastoral activity must support and promote indissolubility. One cannot give in to the divorce mentality. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. Since annulments are not even considered without a civil divorce, it's obvious that the prospect of an easy annulment could easily encourage couples in a rocky marriage to break up. And it's easy to see how this could also tempt someone to think, hey, if there's so many invalid marriages, maybe my marriage wasn't valid either. And to the degree that that sort of impression becomes more and more widespread in the general Catholic population, to that very degree, the stability and security of everybody's marriage is threatened. Because it's just shaking the foundations there. Let's reflect on a few more statistics. In the year 2007, in 140 nations and territories around the world, there was not a single declaration of nullity for reasons of defective consent. In that same year, 37 other nations around the world granted between one and a dozen declarations of nullity on defect of consent grounds. But here in the United States of America, of the almost 28,000 declarations of nullity granted in 2007 by the ordinary process, 99.6% were granted for reasons of defect of consent. In a study of a full decade of decisions reviewed by the Sacred Roman Rota, at least 92% of the American, American defective consent cases were overturned. Okay, so properly understood, what exactly does defective consent mean? Remember, we have to consent to make the contract. Now remember, for invalidity, we are only talking about defective consent at the moment of making the contract, because that's the only thing an annulment pertains to. A declaration of nullity pertains to what happened right there when they exchanged vows. That's it. If the vows weren't validly exchanged, no contract. That's all. That's why if they go to the wedding booze chapel, it can't happen. They have to be there. And what is happened? So what's defective consent? St. John Paul II explains that the only incapacity in giving consent invalidates a marriage and only the most severe forms of mental illness substantially impair the freedom of the individual. Benedict XVI elaborated on this by explaining that in order for that incapacity to be established before the marriage tribunal, a specific serious mental illness which seriously impairs the use of reason or the will had to be present before the attempted marriage. Okay, so we're talking severe mental illness. 
Properly understood then, defective consent refers to someone who's out of his mind, literally not in his right mind at the moment of exchanging vows because of a pre-existing condition. This would also include, by the way, someone who's extremely drunk or high at drugs when they come up there. Okay, at the moment of exchanging vows. And yet, here in the U.S., in 2007, of the almost 28,000 declarations of nullity found by the ordinary process, 99.6% were for defective consent. One of the most amazing implications of these statistics is that somehow these serious psychological incapacities, which allegedly severely impaired the use of reason on the part of one or both partners, were completely invisible to the very people responsible for God and man to make sure the contract's validly entered into. The priest is just up there for nothing, and neither are the two witnesses. So, they're there to make sure this contract is seriously and soberly made. The priest and the witnesses. And yet years, and even decades later, our American tribunals can somehow hone in and detect these previously unknown, and in fact, invisible psychological states. It's just spectacular. These defective consent cases raise even more serious questions. Let's suppose these reasons are true. We'll just consider the men. If there actually be such an immense pool of men who are apparently unable to contract marriage because for some reason they can't validly give consent to such a contract, since we priests are drawn from exactly the same pool of men as all the grooms, then it would only be logical to conclude that there would be a correspondingly immense number of priests here in the United States, who although they went through the rite of ordination, nonetheless were unable for some reason to give consent to actually being ordained. But if that were true, since an invalidly ordained man does not become a priest, then except for the baptisms he performs, he wouldn't be able to confect any of the other sacraments. He wouldn't be able to say mass, because he wouldn't really be a priest. He wouldn't be able to absolve sins since he wouldn't really be a priest. He wouldn't be able to uh, give the last rites, since he wouldn't really be a priest. In fact, the sacraments would suddenly vanish virtually everywhere throughout our fair land. And yet, worse yet, there'd be no way for any of us to tell. But it's just not possible. God didn't make things that hard. We knew what we were doing when we got ordained, and most of these men knew what they were doing when they got married. There are other consequences of this sort of rubber stamping by tribunals. Again, there's no delicate way to put any of this. When tribunals spew out decrees of nullity for 100% of the cases put forward, it's a screaming injustice for everyone. And it makes it very difficult for couples with even the most solid cases to have that peace of soul in knowing that their situation has been dealt with, with the kind of seriousness and rigor that it needs to be, the kind of tension that they need for such a delicate and painful matter. There are real annulments, but they get lost in this ocean when you spit out 100%. So that's the third point. Fourth point, let's briefly consider a few of the changes that will come effect in December by taking a quick look at Medes Udex. That's the, the document Pope Francis issued on uh, September 8th. First, as bad as it is now, it's still mandatory for a second tribunal to review the decisions. But starting in December, that will no longer be a requirement. 
Doesn't take a genius to guess what that might mean. In fact, right here in the good old USA, we had a lengthy period of time starting in 1971 in which the mandatory review of annulment cases by a second tribunal was eliminated. And Cardinal Burke notes that during that time, out of the hundreds of thousands of petitions received, not one was denied. Not one. And now this catastrophic system will be in effect not simply in the U.S., but in every Latin diocese of the entire world. It gets better. Starting December, we'll have fast-track annulments. Let's talk about that for a minute. We'll rely largely on analysis of uh, canon lawyer, I, who I actually have profound differences with uh, regarding his attitude on annulments, but nonetheless. Quote, Pope Francis will authorize diocesan bishops to hear and decide, personally and very expeditiously, in roughly one-tenth the time presently needed, certain types of marriage nullity petitions. The Pope lists 10 or 12 factors that enable an annulment petition to which the parties agree to be heard in a fast-track process. These factors are simply examples of things enabling an annulment case to be heard quickly. Now here are a few listed by the Pope. Brevity of marriage life. In other words, the marriage broke up quickly. Abortion procured to prevent procreation. Improper concealment of sterility or serious contagious disease. Concealment of children from a previous relationship. Concealment of incarceration. Unplanned pregnancy of the woman. Lack of reason proved by medical documentation, etc. As one commentator notes, quote, among the circumstances that have opened wide the possibility of a superfast divorce is the brevity of married life. Or the fact the couple were married because of the woman's unexpected pregnancy. What does that have to do with consent? I think that's a great question. What does that have to do with consent? If you consent to the contract, the marriage comes into being. This unbelievable list actually ends with an etc. Does it mean that one can expand this at will? What kind of law is this? It will be the weaker parties, the women and children, who will pay the price for this revolution destabilizing the family, which is already under heavy attack from the secular world. Close quote. The canon lawyer has some more important points. Quote, the most confusing thing about this list is that some of these factors are actually grounds for nullity. Others, however, are most emphatically not grounds for an annulment. For example, brevity of married life. Try to explain to non-canonists why one thing the Pope listed, say lack of use of reason, is grounds for an annulment, but another thing he listed, say pregnancy, is not grounds for an annulment. Close quote. Everybody should let that sink in. Some of the things on the list for the fast-track annulments are grounds for annulment, but some are not. And as this canon lawyer quite rightly points out, try to explain to the average Catholic why some of the things the Pope listed as grounds for fast-track annulments aren't grounds for any sort of annulment at all. It puts priests like me, priests that are trying to be faithful to the teaching of Christ himself, at odds with what the document the Pope's issued. Because I am at odds with it. Who's going to believe guys like me? My marriage broke up quickly. The Pope says it's grounds for annulments, Father, right here in the document. I say it's not grounds for annulment. He says it is. People don't know annulment has to do with the contract. The canon lawyer has more to say. Now listen to this. Quote, Worse, many, many married couples have experienced one or more of these events in their lives. Unfortunately, this has already started. People with any of these factors in their lives are going to wonder, logically and sincerely, whether their marriage may be null. 
They will worry, for example, whether the fact that she was pregnant at the time of the wedding means that their marriage is null. If not, why does it mean that an annulment case could be heard more quickly? Or if he was not very active in the faith when they married, did he just pretend, simulate his wedding promises? Many of these cases are highly dependent on fact analysis. That is to say, what is improper concealment of infertility? What counts as incarceration? And so one must ask, how are such cases reliably to be investigated, considered, and decided by a bishop, a man with about a hundred other things to do at any given time in a matter of a few weeks? Close quote. How are such cases to be reliably investigated, considered, and decided by a bishop in a matter of a few weeks? How are they to be reliably investigated, considered, and decided by a bishop in a matter of a few weeks? It's easy to answer. For the most part, they won't be. Sure, there'll be exceptions here and there, but you don't need me to tell you. For the most part, they won't be. We've already seen the majority of tribunals here in the United States are annulment uh, mills. There's no reason to think this is going to be any different. And every reason to think it's going to be far, far worse. That's not just me talking. On September 8th, the day of the release of Medix Udex, an article was published in the Zurichtoia Romano. Now that's the Vatican daily newspaper. This is the newspaper of the Vatican City. And the article was written by the president of the commission the Pope set up to write this document. And he's explaining the document. The author of the article is Monsignor Pinto, and he explained the purpose of this reform. I quote from an Italian commentator. According to Monsignor Pinto, quote, the invitation of Christ, present in their brother, the Bishop of Rome, would be of that of passing from the restricted number of a few thousand annulments to that immeasurable number of unfortunates who might have a declaration of nullity. That Christ won an immeasurable number of annulments is completely unheard of. Up until now, until Benedict XVI, the ecclesiastical tribunals had always been reproached by popes because they were too indulgent in recognizing annulments. With Pope Francis, everything has been overturned, and they're now attacked for the opposite reason. Now, large-scale annulment factories are to be set up. Close quote. The canon lawyer explains one last feature. Quote, charging any fees for annulment was a constant public relations problem for the church. It seems like annulments are now supposed to look free. Close quote. Okay, so they won't be required, in the short, they won't be required to have a second tribunal review the decisions. There will be fast-track annulments, and they will be free. From a pastoral point of view, I consider this the most frightening thing I have seen coming out of Rome. I hope I'm wrong. I really hope I'm wrong. But I'm scared of the destructive effect of a document like this. I, don't think, I think we're going to see a global flood, a tidal wave of so-called annulments. Millions and millions. Millions. I just can't get the first secret out of my mind. We close with a thought from an Italian commentator. Sister Lucia, the Fatima visionary, one day said to Cardinal Caffaro, Quote, Father, there will come a time when Satan's decisive battle with Christ will be over marriage and the family. Close quote. That's Sister Lucia. Father, there will come a time when Satan's decisive battle with Christ will be over marriage and the family. This is it. This is 